0: Nine eighteen, Jesus is working with the disciples, and uh, he's going to talk about who he is and what he's going to go through. And so, would somebody read eighteen to twenty-two?
1: <clears throat> it came about while he was praying alone; the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, "Who do the multitudes say that I am?" And they answered and said, "John the Baptist," and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. All
0: right, so this is while Jesus was praying. There's a lot of times Jesus was praying, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And... Um, He asked the disciples who people said he was. You know, kind of like, what's the word on the street? And what are they saying about Jesus?
1: John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets?
0: So he's got favorable ratings in the polls. You know, he's, he's well thought of, you know, you could say. But I think Jesus asked that question to ask the next one. Who do you say that I am? Because a lot of times what we tend to do is just kind of parrot what other people think, what they say. We don't really think for ourselves. But what Jesus wanted to know ultimately, doesn't matter what everybody else thinks, what is your conviction? What is your belief? And what's Peter's answer to that? The Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ of God. Yeah, he believed he was the Messiah, which, of course, was a good answer. You know, uh, he, gets to, he passes that test. But then Jesus warned them not to tell this to anyone. That's a pretty strong word for warned there. Uh, the margin in my Bible says strictly admonished, almost, almost as strong as saying rebuked. But it's a stern warning, don't tell anybody. That's odd. If he's the Messiah, why not tell?
2: Is it because he wants them to find out for themselves?
0: Um, I don't know. Probably not. Good guess. I think there's better answers.
1: Would that escalate things too quickly at this point?
0: In what sense?
2: Um like the Pharisees,
0: uh, resistance? All right, that could be, yes, because he's got kind of a timetable yeah. he's following, and if he's seen widely as being the Messiah, they may bring him down too quickly. I could see that. I think there's even better answers, or I think it could be a variety of answers. What do you think, No, I do wouldn't
2: be able to go around and do what he needs to do because of the crowds.
0: Oh, I, I think that's a decent answer. What would if if, he, if they started telling everybody he was the Messiah? What would people think when they heard he's the Messiah?
2: He's going to knock
0: out Rome. Yeah, they had such worldly, political, materialistic views of the Messiah that I don't know that would have communicated the right idea. But maybe even more than that, what would the disciples themselves have thought when they said that? Were they prepared to really announce him as the Messiah? Or did they have their own misconceptions about what that meant? I don't think I don't think until Jesus suffers and dies, that it's really appropriate in this context for him to be proclaimed as the Messiah, because nobody really grasped the meaning of that. They had wrong concepts about that. He needed to suffer before his greatness was manifested, so the next thing he says is I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So he's predicting his, his suffering. Which really kind of blows up the whole messianic picture that people believed in. You know, he's not going to be some dazzling king of earthly glory. He's going to be rejected and killed. And rejected by who? The but hereby. Well, there's chief priests and scribes. Not by the thugs and lowlifes by the religious elite, by the Jewish leadership and be killed, not just die everybody dies, he's going to be killed and, and it, it, he says must suffer must do this, this is like in accordance with God's plan this, so so on the one hand Peter says he's the Christ of God and the next thing you know Jesus is saying and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed And you can't do that to the Messiah so I think Jesus is already working on them to modify their concept of what the Messiah was. Thoughts and comments on that?
1: He asked them, who do you say that I am? And then told him not to say it. <laughs> exactly.
0: Say it and don't say it. That's right.
1: <laughs> you say fun. that I am? No, you don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's right. Some things we're not ready to say. Well, uh, perhaps we might say, unfortunately, the cross was not going to just be for Jesus. He moves from there to talking about what they're going to have to go through, 23 to 27.
2: Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? And whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory Mm -hmm. and his father's and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of
0: God. All right. Well, he says to them all in verse 23. What he's about to say is not just for a few elite. This is for all of those who want to come after him. What do they have to do?
1: Deny yourself and take a cross. That's painful.
0: When we talk about denying yourself, we almost always would complement that with what you're denying yourself. You know, I'm going to deny myself chocolate. I'm going to deny myself, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, some particular pleasure or habit or whatever. But he didn't say that. He said deny yourself. What you're the, the object of the denial is yourself. You're not doing what you want, what you choose. Taking up your cross daily. The uh, idea is what Jesus announces for himself in 22 is not just for him. We're, we're going to be crucified as well. Although it's kind of odd to say, take up your cross daily, right? Because who would normally take up a cross?
1: has been condemned.
0: Yeah. Who's about to be executed? Does he do it daily? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't live through it to do it the next day. Can you imagine saying, I want you to be crucified every day? But that's what Jesus is saying. So this is a living crucifixion. You know, this is... Uh, Daily sharing Jesus' suffering, daily denying ourselves, daily dying to what we want, and living for the Lord. Really, we cease to exist for us, and we we become a servant of the Lord. Or, as he says in 24, he loses his life for my sake. The idea of of giving ourselves to God, um, you know, for him. You know, Jesus, wow. I mean, Jesus said some things that if he were a mere man... You know, I want you to lose your life for my sake. Wow, that would be kind of arrogant of a mere man, but when you understand who Jesus was, that's exactly what we do. Not that we're necessarily going to be killed for him, though it could be that, but we are giving ourselves to him and, and giving our life up for him as a living sacrifice. And and the things that are, that are issues for us in that are two things. Verse 25, material possessions. What is a man profited to he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So what good does it do to get everything and lose yourself? You know, what, what good would it do to gain a whole museum full of wonderful paintings and in the same process go blind? <laughs> Couldn't enjoy it. You know, so we really need to... Not put a high priority on material things. It doesn't matter what you have in this life. It doesn't last long enough to count. And the other thing we struggle with is the opinion of people. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of him. We're so tempted to be ashamed because it's uncool to follow Jesus. People might think we're weird. You know, why don't we speak up more for the Lord? Uh, Because... You know, a lot of times we're ashamed. We're too worried about what people think. So the two dangers to me in being a disciple are material possessions that we give ourselves to and, and you know, a shame of, of the Lord. We're too worried about the opinion of people. You know, and if we get over our greed and our shame of the Lord, think about how much better we do. Those are real issues. I mean, what Jesus says in these verses, wow, that's that's what we need. That's what it takes to be a disciple. And it's not easy to do that. Thoughts and comments on that? Now, he says in verse 26 that he'll be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, which I think is probably referring to like his second coming and the final judgment. Uh, people will see that various ways, but it seems reasonable to me to look at it that way. That's when the Lord will ultimately be ashamed of us. If we deny him, he'll deny us, that kind of thing. But then verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. How do you ever see the kingdom of God anyway? What is there to see? Well, how would you define the kingdom of God?
2: Is so it like the churches that have been built by that time, and the people who have been taught the gospel?
0: That's that's not really the kingdom. That's the church. And there's a distinction. What's the kingdom?
1: So when you think of a king, an earthly king and his kingdom, it's everything. It's all the property and the people, the policies, kind of everything.
0: And occasionally the Bible uses it that way. I think it uses it more for like the reign and dominion of the king itself. The kingdom is his kingship. I think that would communicate clearer to us till they see the kingship of God or the the rule, the dominion of God. But but that's not a seeable item exactly. How do you see God's dominion? Well, it seems to me like what you see as evidence of it. Do you ever say I, I saw I saw the wind? <laughs> but do you ever see the wind? <laughs> well, you see the effect of the wind. You know, you see the trees blowing and things like that. It's really not the wind you're seeing, but we kind of talk about it that way. So you're not seeing the kingdom exactly directly, but you do see the kingdom in that you see the evidence. You see the glory or the power or something that shows you the kingship. Now, it's a really debatable item to ask, answer the question, what does he mean? There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In other words, you say, some of them are going to die until they see this. When did they see it? What did they see? And I think there's a, a fair number of possible answers to that question. What do you think they saw? When when did this happen? The
2: next chapter?
0: The next chapter? Oh,
2: not the next chapter, the next verse.
0: The Transfiguration? Yeah. I think that would fit this. It was a glimpse of the kingdom, at least the kingly glory. Not all of them saw it. In uh, Mark and Matthew, that's the very next thing after that statement. And 2 Peter 1, Peter actually discusses the transfiguration. And in 2 Peter 1, 16, He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he saw it as the power and coming of the Lord. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So there's a sense in which they saw the kingdom. My guess is he doesn't mean just the transfiguration. My guess is that the transfiguration itself is almost prefiguring... His kingly power and glory, maybe in the resurrection, I think that's a possibility that they see him in that. Maybe in the manifestation of the kingdom, starting on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit coming down was a demonstration that the kingdom had arrived. Maybe in the destruction of Jerusalem... Uh, Luke 21 is going to use, they're going to see the kingdom approach. They're going to see the evidence that he's ruling and reigning. Maybe all of that. You know, that really, some of them were going to see his kingdom in various ways. A few of them in a the few days, and others of them in other ways over a period of time. There's just going to be several things that were going to show them the kingdom, and, and, and some of them were not going to die until they'd seen that. Both the three that saw the transfiguration and all the others, except for Judas, who saw other evidences of the kingdom.
2: Judas didn't see that? did Judas didn't see this stuff?
0: No, why not?
2: Well, he, he did crucify himself, but that was...
0: He hung himself. Yeah, sorry.
2: Oops. Yeah. That was after...
0: After what? Was it after the destruction of Jerusalem? No. Was it after the day of Pentecost? No. Was it after his resurrection? No. After the transfiguration, but Judas wasn't the one who saw those. Okay. Okay. That's my take. So that's kind of a vague answer, somewhat, uh, because I'm not really wanting to choose between them. I do think it's significant that the transfiguration is the next event. I do think that is a glimpse of that kingdom, But I'm not convinced that that's the only thing he has in mind. Thoughts and comments on all that? So what are
2: the other takes on verse 26? Are they related
0: to... Some people would take that as the destruction of Jerusalem. But that just seems inadequate. People find the destruction of Jerusalem way more in the New Testament
2: than I (laughs) 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 do.
0: We will see it out of every rock and crevice.
2: Daddy? Baby.
0: Comments or questions? Alright, how about 28 to 36?
1: Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy asleep, but they became fully awake when they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men, men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cr- cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen.
0: All right, so Jesus up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He's praying <laughs> again. Uh, he does that, makes a habit of that. And what happens to Jesus? brighter yeah he starts glowing yeah (laughs) exactly
1: he's transfigured
0: yeah he is (laughs) his figure becomes bright and his clothes get white it's almost like his skin became transparent you could see his inner spiritual glory shine out shine through and there's a couple guys up there talking with him of all people who were they
2: Moses and Elijah
0: you know, if you had had two figures from the Old Testament to talk with him up there, how many of you would have come up with Moses and Elijah as your first choice? Why Moses and Elijah?
2: You now they were quite prominent in the Old Testament. They were. Yeah, God spoke to them a
0: lot. Okay. I can see Moses more than Elijah.
2: I would agree with
0: that. So why Moses and Elijah?
1: Represent the law and the prophets. Oh, I think that's one thing. I
0: think that's maybe the most important thing. They do. Moses was the lawgiver, and Elijah was kind of the dean of the prophets. Are there anything else? Anything else strike you about Moses and Elijah that might be, you know, interesting in this conjunction with Jesus?
1: Talking about his departure.
0: Yeah, which is literally his exodus, which is kind of interesting,
1: right? And I don't know what Elijah would have to add to that conversation.
2: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't have an exodus, <laughs> but did prophesy so about it? Hmm? Mm,
0: the exodus, no. or Jesus' departure? Yeah, I don't know. I think of some other things. For example. They both fasted for forty days, as Jesus did. Think about that. Hello? They both uh, kind of enjoyed an encounter with God on a mountain. This is on a mountain.
2: Wait, they both
0: fasted for forty days.
2: Yeah. When did Moses fast when he was getting for no, along? That no. one When did Elijah fast? When
0: he was fleeing Jezebel.
2: Was when the apostles fasted? Yeah, they to that mountain.
0: So that was on the mountain, that part? When God... No, who are you talking to? About about Moses or Elijah? Oh, Elijah. Elijah Mount Carmel. He called fire down from heaven. Burned up the sacrifice. Remember that? Uh, I
2: thought you were talking about
0: the time on Hebrews. I had an experience with the Lord. What about this one? Neither (laughs) of them have a known grave. Right? For whatever that's worth. But maybe the most, well, this really goes along with being the law of the prophets. But do you realize where Moses and Elijah come together? The last three verses of the Old Testament. The third to the last verse, remember the law of Moses, my servant, and so forth. The second to the last verse, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in the last three verses of the Old Testament, you had Moses and Elijah with two figures mentioned. But
2: was that the last book of the
0: Old Testament? I'm I'm saying the last one written, not necessarily the last one as they had the Bible. So, um, whatever we want to do with that. I think the law and the prophets is probably the most important thing. Uh, But it's kind of cool to think about other things that they have in common, whatever that's worth. And what does Peter want to do?
2: Make a temple
0: for all of them? Yeah, kind of freeze the moment. Uh, you know, because he'd been totally overcome with sleep. That's one thing the disciples do well. <laughs> 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 and he comes up with this kind of unfortunate suggestion. Makes you feel like maybe he needed to stay asleep. Or, <laughs> you know... Let's make three tabernacles. I don't know. Did he? Did he want to like? Is this like three tents so we got a place to stay? Is this three shrines so we can worship them? I'm not sure exactly what the idea was. Uh, but I don't it,
2: think he knew what
0: the idea yeah. was. He, I think he was
2: just talking.
0: Yeah, but the problem he had was that he was suggesting too many tabernacles. You know. It's cool that he said three, not two. You know, he could have said one for Moses, one for Elijah, but he wants to give Jesus one, too. That's really nice. <laughs> and, uh, but the Lord appears out of heaven and says, not three, and not two, just one. Jesus is the only one who ought to, ought to have a tower of a This is my son, you know, my chosen one. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah disappear. It's just Jesus. So Jesus has the authority, he has the priority We ought to listen to Jesus, not the law and the prophets. Um, So, that's interesting. Thoughts and comments? Okay. Uh, Well, while he's been up on the mountain, there have been trouble down in the valley. 37 to 43.
1: And he came about on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, the great multitude met him. And behold, a man from the multitude shouted out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions, and foaming at the mouth, and it mauls. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? And put up with you, bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, uh, M- go? That's
0: good. That's <laughs> fine. Yeah, it kind of changes the middle of the verse. Yeah, the middle of the verse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes you do. Um... You know, this is in a kind of a section of failures of the disciples, if you stop and look at it. I mean, they kind of, well, I mean, really almost this whole chapter, but they don't know what they're going to do to feed the multitude, and then, you know, they, uh, you know, Peter has a weird suggestion about uh, the three on the mountain, and, and now we're just going to go from failure careening to next failure, next failure. And and and, and I, I would entitle this section The Failures of the Disciples. Uh, but think about this. You know, in a way that can be encouraging. The disciples just blundered from one egregious error to the next and Jesus still put up with them. He didn't give up on them. And it can be informative. We ought to guard against failing like they did. It can be helpful. Sometimes we need patience in working with other people. What do we do when they fail a lot? Do we just give up? Well, Jesus didn't, so that's good. Uh, So, here, they come down, and there's a big crowd, and this guy's saying, Teacher, you know, look at my son. You know, he's my only boy, and he's got a demon. And I asked the disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. So, here you had the chosen three who were blinded by the light up on the mountain, and the other nine who were baffled by the power of darkness down in the valley... They're all kind of struggling. It's a bad situation. In fact, what happens when this guy starts bringing his demon possessed boy to Jesus?
1: Threw him into convulsion.
0: Yeah. I mean, wow, this is kind of bad. I mean, Satan doesn't give up his victims without a fight, does he? You know, he's got a seizure, he's being brought to Jesus. You know, see a real time. uh, you know, thing here. Um, And the disciples have been unable to deal with it. Now, does that surprise you? Why why would the disciples have thought they could cast out demons? Because they could. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus gave them that power in chapter 9, verse 1, and they were doing it. So that becomes more baffling. I mean, your first thought to think, well, surely they wouldn't be able to cast out demons. Yes, they could. They were, and they did, and now they don't. And why not? And Jesus, when he finds out they couldn't heal it, notice what he says in verse 41. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So is Jesus saying that... For the rest of the people, or is he saying that about the disciples? You know, it kind of makes you wonder. Um, you know, this is the only time in the New Testament that disciples of Jesus tried to heal somebody and they couldn't. And so Jesus does, you know, and that's that. Wonder why the disciples couldn't (coughs) hear.
2: Did they not
0: have enough faith? I think that's right. What does that mean?
2: Were they trusting themselves and of God more?
0: I think so. Uh, the other Gospels talk about how this one only comes out by prayer and they didn't have enough faith. And it's kind of shocking to think that they came across a demon and they tried to expel it without praying. Can you believe that? You think about the first time. Jesus just had given them power. They came across, came across exhibit A, you know, a demon. I bet they were trembling. I bet they were begging the Lord for help, you know, and all that. And they cast it out. It's like, wow, thank you, God. Wow. And the second one, they were pretty scared. They're begging for help and asking God to pray. And they cast it out. Wow, that's great, God. But I don't know how many down the line this was. You know, we come to now demon 187 or, you know, 543 or whatever. And oh yeah, come out, demon! Didn't even pray. Didn't think about the Lord. Now guess this one out. But you think about it. How often do we do that? Ah, See, I indict myself in some of these things. I can remember, you know, when I first started doing some preaching, especially when I preached like at other churches, not just where I was going. I can remember praying a lot and being scared and, you know, stage fright and things like that. And, you know, well now, don't think about it. You know, it becomes something, I can handle that. I can do this. I think that's where the disciples were. I, we, I can, we can do this. We can handle this demon. And when we start trying to do things on our own state, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fail. We, we can't do that. They came to a demon they couldn't cast out on their own power. And so the lesson is to stay humble and really trust the Lord and not think we can handle it. Thoughts and comments? Why does he
2: call them a perverted generation? Because they were. <laughs> and I could see how the unbelieving fits.
0: But... I think they are unfaithful to the Lord violated their marriage vows to God
2: yeah, themselves,
0: everything else. A lot of times they'll say unbelieving and adulterous generation. He seems very
2: exasperated.
0: You know, he spent been a long time with these 12 to see them bungle an exorcism because they wouldn't even pray. <laughs> Other comments or questions? Okay, how about mid-43 to
2: 45? (laughs) (laughs) But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask
0: him about this statement. Okay. So everybody's amazed at Jesus. But he says, I want you to really listen to this. You know, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You know, kind of a contrast the Son of Man and the hands of men. And, you know, that means he's going to be crucified. They didn't understand, and they didn't ask. I think they didn't want to know. I think they're afraid of what the answer would be. But Jesus is warning them, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, they're going to do to him what they want to. He's trying to get them prepared. He says this to them over and over again, he doesn't want them to be blindsided by what's going to happen. They were, but it wasn't because he didn't try. Thoughts and comments? 46
2: to 48. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood in by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is... This is
0: the one that's great. Well, as soon as Jesus said he's about to be delivered into the hands of men, what do they start arguing about?
2: He's
0: going to be the greatest. What do you think about that argument?
2: I think it sounds dumb at the wrong time.
0: Yeah. It sounds dumb at any time, but especially now, yeah. <laughs> be- why does it sound dumb?
2: I'm very selfish because they're not paying attention to what he
0: just said. That's for sure. Think about this. You know, none of the disciples were all that great in the first place. It's kind of like uh, trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. You know, what, what, what does that prove? You know, I mean, the greatest among them is still... Lowly as can be. The lowest midget. The smallest, Uh, the shortest, the tallest midget. How about that? You know. I mean, it's like that. Wow, that's just just weird. Um, And you wonder, how did that argument get started with them anyway? You know, I can just hear it. The three were bragging about going up on the mountain with Jesus. He likes us best. We were the ones out there. And the others are like, oh yeah, we heard you took, he took you up there because he didn't think he could let you out of his sight. You know, and things like that. (laughs) You think about what they must have been saying to each other, arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They got to be coming up with reasons why, no, I'm the one, no, I'm the one, no, he likes me better, no, I'm going to have, you know, of all the stupid things to do in the, in the presence of Jesus when he's just gotten through telling him and telling him he's going to be crucified, killed, and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. I just ask you know why they don't ask him they know it's stupid deep down they don't want him to overhear them in that you know you ever get in an argument and you don't want your parents to hear you <laughs> yeah so that's kind of the idea i mean they just really don't understand that you the humility of, of 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 service you know Jesus is thinking about suffering, they're thinking about position and glory and honor and all that kind of stuff. Jesus knew what they were doing, and he's he's trying to get this point across. So he uses a visual aid. What's his visual aid? A little child. So what does he say about the child? Yeah, so what's he saying? We need to... Why why did he do that? That seems a little odd, doesn't it? How does that relate? We need to treat insignificant people the same way we would treat
2: Jesus.
0: Yes. We need to identify with ourselves and care about the lowly and the humble and the people who have no status. Because it doesn't matter. Status is unimportant with the Lord. You know, of all the people who can't do anything for you, there's a little child can't do anything for you. But you serve the person, you receive the person, you reach out to the person who has nothing to offer you back. I think that's the idea. You know... Remember how the disciples in chapter 18 will think Jesus was too important to receive children. They thought they were too important to receive children. Children are a nuisance. You know, they're headache and all that kind of stuff. You know, greatness in the kingdom is serving the person who has nothing to offer. The person who's annoying. And if you receive then this child, you receive Jesus. If you receive Jesus, you receive God. You know, so think about what what an amazing blessing you get from a simple act of kindness to a child. It starts a chain reaction that goes all the way up to heaven. So it's really important that we care about people who have nothing to give us. Care about people who are lowly and unimportant and things like that. I think that's a struggle for us. You know, our are there some people to us who are not really people? You know, honor all men. So, I mean, there's a, a little child child count. You know, I, I think even, I think it's helpful, i probably said this before, it's helpful to learn kids' names. You know, I mean, how many adults in a congregation that has a bunch of kids have no idea who half those kids' names are? Call them by name. Interact with them. Care about them. They have nothing they're going to be able to do for you. But you're serving them and helping them. I think that's what Jesus would have done. I have comments or questions
1: on that. Doesn't seem to fit with the the conclusion. He is least among you is the one who is great. Mm-hmm. Yes, has as often as Jesus does. It's deeper than the surface. Uh, yeah, <coughs> the
0: one who humbles himself the most, the one who's the least pretentious, the least promoting himself.
1: Especially, I mean, you can almost see, well, who receives a child in my name receives me. And he who is least among you is the greatest. But he throws in that, he who receives me, receives him who sent me. <laughs> a little extra. That's right. No extra charge there.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you got several ways of looking at that. But yeah, that's, that's you know, interesting. Right, 49
1: and 50. And John answered, said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you.
0: So John says, Look, we saw this guy <laughs> casting out demons in your name. Some kind of a freelance exorcist. You know, Does that remind you of anybody? Not necessarily casting out demons. Does that remind you of any incident in the Bible? Well, think about this. What did they do to the, with the guy? What did John do when he saw this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name?
1: Tried to make him stop it. Tried to. Stop.
0: <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, the disciples themselves were having a struggle casting out demons. They sure don't want somebody else to be able to, right? But what was was the reason John gives why he tried to stop him? Because he didn't follow them. Wow. Do you see a problem there? As if they were worthy of being followed? Now, if he just said because he doesn't follow you, that would have made more sense. Because he doesn't follow us. Wow. So you remember these two guys that are prophesying and somebody was jealous for the uh, main prophet's authority and wanted them him to stop them?
2: Moses and
0: the guys for prophesying in the camp? Yes. Who were the two guys? Oh I have no idea. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> remember? Get extra credit for it. El Dad and Me Dad. Oh, where is that? That's in Numbers uh, 11, I think. Yeah, Numbers 11. And Joshua wanted Moses to stop them because, like, they were stealing his thunder. Moses was like, boy, I wish everybody prophesying. <laughs> you know, that's great. We ought to want everybody to be serving the Lord. But so, now the question comes to me then. Well, so, how is this guy casting on demons anyhow?
2: There's only one way that they come out,
0: right? Well, the the, the Pharisees didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there
1: were a couple other guys later later on that tried it, casting out demons in the name of Paul, who Jesus, are, who
0: Paul preached. Jesus, who
1: Paul preached.
0: <laughs> and how did that work out for them? Not they so well. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? They got injured, and yeah. Where where was that? Anybody remember? What well, what book? All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> remember where it was? Uh, no, second half. Sons of Sceva. Yeah, good. Seven of them. After That's right. Nine.
2: After chapter nine. Yeah,
0: it was after chapter nine. <laughs> 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 and
2: 10. before,
0: and before chapter twenty-nine. <laughs> it
2: wasn't <a> chapter twenty-nine. It <laughs> might not <laughs> be
0: before? It was in Acts nineteen in Ephesus. Yeah. So, but. This guy wasn't getting beat up. And Jesus says, you know, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So I say this is a guy like Eldad and Medad, not a guy like the seven sons of Sceva. But wonder how he got the power to cast out demons anyhow. Well, we know here, don't we? Don't we know? Doing it in Jesus' name. name. That means by Jesus' power and authority, Jesus must have given it to him. Well, did Jesus ever give power to anybody besides the 12 to cast out demons? Yeah. The other
2: 58?
0: Yeah, well, I think like another seven. 70. Yeah. In the next oh, chapter.
2: they're all. The 12 weren't part of
0: the I don't think they are. Oh. Yeah. In the next chapter, he's going to give power to 70 guys. We don't know those are the only times either. So, I'm assuming Jesus at some point in time gave power to this guy, but he doesn't happen to be following along in the company of the disciples.
2: And
0: so, you know, it's like they're jealous and want to protect their exclusive powers. You know, they're the inner circle. And, uh, so, you know, Jesus said no. I mean, should we be jealous of people who well, think about how do you feel about uh, how do you like it when you hear that some other church is really converting a lot of people and thriving and doing well? Well, they must be doing it the wrong way. No, you know, you know and you just kind of make us jealous and resentful, you know, shouldn't we hope they're doing it the right way and that more people are being brought to the Lord. That would be awesome. We're on the same team. What would you think if you found out about some church in Hendricks County that you've never heard of, and they've never heard of any Christian you know of, but they they're following the Bible, they're doing just what it says, they just studied the Bible and started doing it, but they don't they don't have the name Church of Christ on the, you know on the, the you know foundation stone, and uh, you know they don't know anybody we know. Would you try to hinder them, or would you help them? Uh, We shouldn't have a party spirit. Now, if they're not following what the Lord says, then let's teach them the way of God more perfectly. But if they are, let's rejoice and help. You know, they don't have to know me. They don't have to get my approval. If they're following the Lord, wonderful. So we need to get away from this, you know, us and them mentality, I guess. Thoughts and comments on that? That's a really interesting little
1: tidbit. They didn't want somebody else uh, cutting in on their position that they were arguing about earlier. Right yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Especially someone who could actually
1: succeed. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. But he was doing it. <laughs> Rocks are already one out of 12. Don't want to make that 13 or 71. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's a little unclear. You know, they're arguing about position. Later, they're wanting to be in position in his kingdom, as if, you know, cabinet members or whatever. But here he was talking about, I don't think they understood it, but, you know, talking about being killed, you almost wonder if they're, I'll be next in line (laughs) to take over whenever. Yeah. I don't know. I hope not. I don't (laughs) know. (laughs) Yeah, and the fact that they didn't understand it, I don't think that would make a lot of sense. But
0: But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense them doing (laughs) it in any situation. Wow. You, You think, and they've been around Jesus enough by now to understand that's not the right attitude to have. But I'll tell you, people today fight over, you know, position and glory and. Influence, and you didn't treat me right, and they may say it's a doctrinal problem, but it's really, you know, they want to control and they want they want everybody to follow them. And... Other thought? Fifty-one to fifty-six.
2: Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but save them. And they went into another village.
0: Okay. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's kind of a theme through Luke. Jesus is kind of for a while on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going through Samaria and he sends some disciples to make advance arrangements. Kind of reminds you of John the Baptist work, preparing the way. Not exactly the same, of course, since John was really preparing the people for Jesus. They're they're getting accommodations ready for him, I guess. And the Samaritans didn't receive them because it's obvious they were going to Jerusalem. They didn't want to help anybody go into their hated enemies in Jerusalem. A lot of bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. And think about it. You know, Jesus was rejected by the Jews. He was rejected by the Gentiles. He was rejected by the Jerusalem leaders and now he's rejected by the Samaritans. You know, he's Pretty much rejected by everybody. And um, so when the Samaritans treat these disciples ugly, what do they want to do?
1: At least they asked permission first. They (laughs) (laughs) wanted to call down fire from heaven on them.
0: Let's incinerate them. Don't just shake the dust off your feet. Reduce them to dust. <laughs> or ashes. the case of my feet. Well, how how did Jesus receive that idea? He said he didn't
2: come to destroy his lives, but
0: to save That certainly wasn't the right uh, spirit. I mean, they are supposed to love and care about these people. Not try to blast them. Um, you can see zeal, but it's not its not well-directed zeal. Um, and, I mean, Jesus doesn't force himself on people. They went on to another village. You know, he's not going to stay where he's not welcome. But, boy, this is a lot of failures of the disciples in one fell swoop here. Boy, it reminds me of this, too. Remember when one of those two went to a Samaritan village in Acts chapter 8? Alright, so who were these two? James
2: and John,
0: James and John that wanted to uh, bring the fire down. Which one of them in Acts 8 went to a Samaritan village? John and who was with him? Philip? No. Peter. And they went to this village in Samaria, and what did they call down on the Samaritans? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's quite a contrast, don't you think? (laughs) They go from wanting to call down fire on them to calling the Holy Spirit down and falling on them. I think John's learned a few things in the interim, Uh, but Jesus certainly doesn't approve of this. Um, he doesn't force himself on people who don't want to, you know, follow him. Thoughts and comments. What do
2: you have to say about
0: the textual discrepancy? Ah, uh, it's probably not in the original, but it's a good statement. <laughs> <laughs> See, it is a reasonable statement, but I don't think it's in the original. Charlie.
2: But why did Elijah call down fire on
0: people if calling down fire isn't the right thing to do? Um I'm not saying it's always not the right thing to do. I think Elijah did the right thing. God approved of that. But just the idea of they won't receive us a them. You know, what were they trying to do with Elijah? They were trying to arrest him and kill him. A little different situation. These people just refuse hospitality. And I mean they you know these were people uh, sent by uh, Ahab, right? No, uh, Ahaziah. Oh. To to bring him back. And Ahaziah was Ahab's son. So he was a mess. Uh, so, I don't know. That's probably where they got the idea, though. That's my guess. Other thoughts? Well, now you've got some prospective (laughs) disciples, and each of these is rather interesting, so 57 and 58.
1: And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, I mean, here's a good guy, you know, he's, I'll follow
0: you wherever you go, you know, He's excited about following Jesus, and Jesus almost throws cold water on the parade, right? What does he say?
1: I don't know what that's got to do with the question. I do. (laughs) Once again, it's not exact, but he says the foxes have holes. In other words, everybody's got a home except me. But why is that well Hard to follow him that's exactly right. If he follows Jesus wherever he
0: goes, guess what? There's no pillow. You know, I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, have you thought about what you're committing yourself to? You might, before you say, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, I might like to know where you're going. You know, before you commit to Jesus, you might want to think about what's what's the cost? What's he going to ask and demand? You know, because if you're going to be Jesus' disciple, you're going to have to go through the things he goes through. And it's not going to be comfortable, it's not going to be secure. And so I think he's wanting this prospective follower to, to realize what pledging allegiance to him is really going to mean. That foxes and the birds are, are situated more advantageously than Jesus is. Sometimes people are eager, but they're eager because they don't know what it what it really amounts to. Oh yeah, I want to do I want to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus in Luke 14 said, you've got to count the cost. You know, he didn't want somebody who just, you know, is committing themselves without understanding what it's really going to take. He wants people who really want to follow him. Did the guy follow him? It
2: doesn't
0: say. Yeah, I don't think we know Would you have. You know, I mean, isn't that the question? It really doesn't matter if that guy followed or not. Are we willing to follow Jesus when it means we have nothing, we lose everything, we relinquish our security, we become vulnerable? I mean, I think we need to take more seriously what the commitment to follow Jesus will really mean. You know, it's not going to be a picnic. And it would really be helpful for us to come to grips with that. Or we make this just totally un, non-serious commitment. You know, we're just in a wave of enthusiasm. We say, you know, I'll give you everything up to half my kingdom, when you don't even have a kingdom. You know, <laughs> and so, I mean, it's just like, I'll follow you anywhere, and I'll do whatever you say. Well, Really? Yeah, well, yeah, as long as it's, you know, got a print bed and all that. So I don't know whether this guy did or not, but I, he, if he does, if he did, he did with a whole lot better understanding of what this was going to mean. Okay, any comments or questions on that? Well, why don't we
1: uh, knock it off there then, and we'll uh, work on 59, uh, 9.59 and three weeks.